Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Barbara Fortini, who is the Associate Professor of Genetics at Keck Graduate Institute and Program Director for the Masters in Human Genetics and Genomic Data Analytics. She leads the Center for Training and Applied Genomics and in her research career primarily focuses on the role of non-coding variation in colorectal cancer. So we're going to cover research today. We're going to cover what it's like to teach graduate students, master's level students in a very rapidly changing world of genomics and biodata. So Barbara, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could start with uh, just a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of your career. How did you get into genomics in the first place and um, what got you interested in this hybrid teaching and uh, research career that you have today? Yeah, so I grew up actually in a very rural town, and my mother was involved in education and a teacher, so teaching is close to my heart. I went to undergraduate at the California Institute of Technology, and there at Caltech, there's a very strong research focus. And so I decided then that I wanted to cure cancer, being a very ambitious undergraduate student. And I actually, as an undergrad, did not like genetics. It was a boring class, and I could not care less if the fly's eye was red or white or if their wing was curly. It wasn't until in my junior and senior level classes that I started to really come back to DNA and to genetics and how it had implications for human health. So then when I decided to go to grad school, I thought, okay, I'm going to focus on cancer. And so I did two years of graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. But then just because of life, I ended up needing to move back to Southern California. So I was back at Caltech for the rest of my PhD. And I worked with Dr. Judy Campbell, and we worked on DNA damage detection, DNA replication. So the very basic enzymes that make our DNA work. And I spent many years on one protein and even on some years on just one mutation in that protein, trying to understand how this change would cause this enzyme to be less efficient at processing Okazaki fragments, and that would lead to a lifetime risk of cancer. And so that was a very classical genetics PhD. I did a lot of yeast work. I did a lot of biochemistry. I did a lot of protein purification. We were really using that reductionist view that we wanted to control every single variable except one. Then in my postdoc, I decided I had had enough of the yeast for a while, and I ended up getting a postdoc with Graham Casey doing colorectal cancer genomics. And I will say one thing that I have always done is I always like the hard project, the easy, straightforward project seemed very boring to me. Yeah. And so I decided to specialize in the genomics of a cancer that has a very strong environmental component. Right. Do you of eat in yeah. fiber? Do you smoke? What kind of cured meats do you eat? Right. That controls a lot of our risk for colorectal cancer. But there is a genetic component. And so we can now, because of large population-based studies, start to put numbers on that. And the, the narrow sense heritability, for those of you who are really into the weeds, tells us that there's a big component of genetics that are not these familial high penetrant mutations, that it's all these contributions of small variants that kind of add up to risk in someone's entire genome. And so I got very interested in sort of switching completely from the spending two years on one variant to let's try to look at all the variants all at once. And we can do that with GWAS, genome-wide association studies. And there the statistics tell us, okay, some variants in this area are giving you a risk for cancer. And so I was brought in as, quote, 
the biologist in the group, to tell people then, okay, why? What is going on? Because as people did these studies, they were a little shocked to find out it wasn't protein coding changes. It was not all these genes that we already knew were involved in colorectal cancer. These variants tend to be in our genetic control elements like enhancers and silencers and repressors. And so it's changing how the genome is read. And so that's what my research has specialized in, looking at how these non-coding variations change how our genes are expressed and how that change in not just one place, but in many different places add up to a lifetime risk of colon cancer. And so I guess you're looking at germline non-coding variants, is that right? Rather than tumor drivers. And what are you finding in your research? How much of the component is down to monogenic drivers, for example, or near, and how much of it is the complex polygenic stuff that it sounds like you were alluding to a moment ago? Yeah. So in colon cancer, about three to 5% is this monogenic high penetrant syndromes like FAP or Lynch syndrome. The rest, which can, depending on the population and how the studies were done, we think it's anywhere between like 15 to 30% of your total genetic risk are these non-coding summative changes. And again, it's not one change, it's just which constellation of variants did you get put together in your genome that can either have a risk to colon rectal cancer. And then some people get lucky, right? There are some people that have collections of variants that protect them from colon cancer, and they're not as high risk as the general population. And what are you learning about that interplay between the environment and genetics that you mentioned? Is it additive in the sense that you get genetic risk and then you smoke and eat things (laughs) you're not supposed to, or there's some multiplications in there where particular genetic backgrounds interact with the environment in a way that isn't so good? The answer is yes to all of them. There are some loci where we can show what's called a G by E relationship. So a genotype by environment relationship. I was co-author on a paper that looked at some diet relationships. We knew, of course, diet has a big component in colon cancer risk, but there are some variants that make you more likely to have cancer if you eat a lot of cured meats, which makes me sad because I love a good cured meat. But there are also some where if you have this variant, you get higher protective benefits from eating a lot of fiber. So two people, same amount of fiber, different protection provided by that because of the genome. And so these days we do a lot of very basic math. We make assumptions like it has to be additive, not because the genetics tell us that, but because the math is easier that way. And so I think what's exciting in the future is we have more and more sophisticated models. We can start to change some of those assumptions and really see if our estimates approximate reality better. So we've done a lot of studies. We think because of twin studies and everything that there's going to be this 30% genetic risk. We can't account for that with our current models. So some of that we do think is going to be, you know, some of them are going to be dominant effects and not additive effects. Some of them are going to be synergistic. Some of them will cancel each other out. You know, we know, and I will say this is why I'm glad I did a yeast sort of PhD, is I know that there are suppressor mutations because I've made them and I've seen them. And so we know that these things are happening. We just don't have enough data yet to find them in something as huge as the human genome where people have, you know, 4 million single nucleotide variants, right? We can't run a model on that much change. What are the data sets that you are using in your research? Is it ones that are associated with the Institute or is it some of the big publicly available ones? Because the way I was going to go with the question was how 
big do data sets actually need to be to answer some of these questions? But actually, maybe I'll just start with what are you using today? Yeah, so we definitely work in a consortium-based model. The size of data sets, we need hundreds of thousands of participants to see the more subtle impacts. We know the big ones. Right? TGF beta is involved in colon cancer. That didn't take very much statistical power to find. But some of the smaller, more subtle changes, and especially ones in places we didn't know to look, take bigger data sets. And so if you want to have 200,000 cases and 200,000 controls, it has to be consortial. I think that's one thing that I really like about genomics is that people work together coming from that quarter biochemistry sort of lineage where everyone was very secretive and you didn't want people to know because you didn't want to get scooped. I think it really holds back science. If you know that you need to collaborate, people are much more open and what questions they're interested in, what trends they're seeing in their data. And so then you can put together bigger data sets. So I was, when my postdoc, we use GameOn Consortium. They're part of the OncoArray. The other big contributor to genome Science also is the industry, right? We had a great relationship with Illumina to make a chip that was custom to do our studies so we could get good statistical power. So I think different than maybe some other forms of biology, there is a lot of talk between the development of the technologies, the research centers that need to enroll that many patients and get them consented and make sure we're handling their data properly. And then in the lab side, once we have that data, so I don't actually work on the actual GWASs anymore. We look at those statistical relationships and then design experiments. So what I use a lot is EQTL data. So like from the GTEx consortium. So we want to know how variation links to changes in gene expression in specifically like parts of the colon. Your colon has very different gene expression throughout it. So your sigmoid colon is different than your transverse colon. And so the only way to do that is to collaborate because you need thousands of samples. Makes sense. And the, I guess the North Star for you and your research, are you trying to understand the fundamental biology by looking at these EQTLs and and figure out what's going on? Maybe you can talk a little bit about, and I know, I think you mentioned (laughs) prior to us recording that you spend maybe 20, 30% of your time on research. So we'll spend 20 to 30% of our time (laughs) talking about that. And then we can talk about teaching, but I'm curious from what your focus is on. I'm interested in today, how the variants themselves can change gene expression because gene expression is a very complicated system of a conversation that the cell has to decide how much of a product it really needs. And so it's not as simple, of course, as we thought it was going to be. Like once we realized that there were variants and they were in promoters and enhancers for the first thing we thought was like, okay, it's breaking up a transcription factor binding site. So this transcription factor is not going to be able to sit down and it's not going to drive gene expression. And that is true for a subset of the functional variants. However, sometimes we can find that there is no change to any canonical binding site. So my question that I keep going back to then is how? How does it actually change? How does having this one letter different, especially because we know that our genome is very resilient? You know, these changes don't like make the wheels fall off when we have them. So how do you actually change them? So my current hypothesis is that it changed the the 3D conformation of the genome. So we know that enhancers and promoters loop around to physically touch each other, mediated by proteins. And so we're looking at, we are trying to decide if those variants actually change the loops, either make them more tightly looped, or perhaps they are left out of the looping. The other thing we've found is that it's not just one 
SNP in a enhancer region that causes the change. They're always inherited with their friends. We call them haplotypes. And so maybe it's not that the one is messed up, that that's five or six are messed up. And then as a total, there maybe is a little bit less efficient binding of this one protein and it doesn't recruit its friend over here. And so combinatorial nature of how our cell decides to express a gene could be affected by that change in the overall variation throughout the whole region. And so we are using a technique called multi-contact PORC. We're trying to use long-read sequencing to capture not just one contact, which is like high C you might've heard of is like a one-to-one thing. We really want to see how the entire collection of loops changes when we switch out different haplotypes. I feel like I may need to take your graduate course at some point because my knowledge stops at high C and you may not know this, but I worked on the non-coding genome in my PhD, but in developmental disorders. And I worked on individual de novo mutations that were in these kind of funny parts of the genome called ultra-conserved elements, where Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, the sequence is almost identical from humans going all the way back to mice, and in some cases, even flies and beyond. And we observed that these de novo mutations in ultra-conserved elements were more common in families with severe developmental disorders, but we couldn't pinpoint why. I had the exact same problem you did of they weren't obviously in transcription factor binding sites. We looked at generating high C data sets and found some things, but the mysteries in the non-coding genome, I think, continue to elude us in almost every <laughs> every major disease yep. area. Yep. And there's always new hypotheses too. Like my other idea, which I have taken no steps to test in the lab, is that it's an actually an enhancer RNA. So our enhancers are transcribed into RNAs and those RNAs help reinforce the loops. So another model could be that it disrupts a hairpin that forms in an RNA that's structural. I mean, we know so little about structural RNAs and their role in, you know, changing gene expression. So there's a million hypotheses today that we can always test in these non-coding regions. No, that's right. And maybe you mentioned long read sequencing. You mentioned something called poor seek that I don't even know that it is that I need to look up. How shifting into education, maybe you could talk a little bit about the courses that you teach and run, some of the Mm -hmm. topics that you go into. And then I'd love to hear how you every year revise your curriculum to stay on top of some of the change. And, And it's probably a little bit difficult to figure out what is a durable change that you need to talk about and what is something that you need to wait a couple of years and see. Does it stick around? <laughs> yes. I should put an asterisk on the bottom of every slide. Maybe it's different. In maybe, five years. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, no use to you in two years. <laughs> exactly. So after my postdoc, I ended up teaching at the Claremont Colleges as an undergraduate genetics faculty member. And while I was there, hopefully, and at the time I was trying to do genetics education better because I understand just how hard it is to fit everything in now. We know so much more about the genome in the last 10 years. So have our textbooks caught up? What are we going to leave out? What do we still need to teach? Like, how do you give a framework for understanding this information? So I was really interested in how to teach genetics for the future. When one of our sister colleges, the Keck Graduate Institute, where I am now, decided to start a genetic counseling program. And they were looking for faculty to help contribute to starting that program. And so I, you know, was having some conversations with how I teach genetics. And it ended up, they said, well, come over to KGI. We need to launch these programs very quickly. So I moved a couple of miles across town to KGI. And while we were in the process of developing the genetic counseling program, there was also this idea to have a sister program that was more focused on data analytics. And this really came from conversations we had with industry partners Where was the biggest need? There's a huge need for genetic counseling in the United States and all over the world. 
However, one of the reasons is because people with this training get siphoned away to industry to do more lab interpretation roles. And so they end up getting this whole education on counseling skills and they use it to do a lab-facing non-patient role. And so KGI said, let's have a master's degree for that if that's really the need that's unmet. And so we designed the master's in science and human genetics and genomic data analytics to meet that need that the industry was telling us we need people who understand human genetics, really understand medical genetics, but also understand enough bioinformatics to be dangerous. Now, every one of these companies has a full bioinformatics team, but there's usually such a huge gulf in the science background of people who do bioinformatics and people who do genetics and genomics. And so we tried to create a master's degree that would, you know, thread the needle between them. I told the first couple of years of students, like, we hope we don't end up with one foot in two boats, right? That's not what we right. want, but we want you to thread the needle of knowledge. So you have this really strong foundation in human genomics. But you also can do some your own bioinformatic tests. You know what kind of statistical power you need. You know what kind of data sets are there. You know what kind of technology is out there. One of the biggest things we teach is just how to find the publicly accessible data and what it means yeah. and what the pitfalls are to not overinterpret that data. And so we got to design a master's program from scratch. I think perhaps I should have been told no a few more times, but they pretty much didn't tell me no as we designed it. So I put together the classes I wish I had taken before I started working in this field. So I teach human molecular genetics for the fall of the first year, and they get molecular genetics because I think you have to really understand the biochemistry of what's going on before you can understand how that is manifest in the genome. And then in the spring, I teach a whole course in human genomics, and our genetic counseling students get that too. So we want our GC students to be thinking genomic-wide. We want them to be thinking of what's going to come in research in the next 10 years. Even if they're not doing it, they need to know what's possible. They need to know what's coming because that knowledge is going to trickle down into the clinic and you can't be scared of it. You have to embrace the fact that it is a rapidly evolving field. In the second year, I teach functional genomics and that's where we get to have fun. We really talk about research style genomics. They pick a region and have to make hypotheses and find publicly accessible data and try to prove their case where their variant is causing disease. And then we do data visualization. We also have ethics and they wow. take medical genetics, biochemical genetics. We want them to have a very well-rounded understanding of how the human genome works. And so teaching and keeping on top of things, it is quite crazy. I feel like I'm new to this role, but I've actually been here at KGI six years now. We've been teaching the program for five years. And this year was the one that I redid my video lectures. And it's amazing. I rewatched something that I personally recorded five years ago. So I will say at KGI, we use a flipped classroom model. So I record my lectures in advance, post them. Yes. And then in class, we just do activities where people yeah. work in groups and they have to interpret data. And I walk around and help them. And so I'm rewatching these videos and it's like, wow, have to cut out that whole section. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're going to re-record this section. We're going to update. I do, there aren't really good textbooks right now for graduate level genomics. So I use a lot of like nature reviews, genetics, 
I try to get students to not be scared of the literature. We have yeah, a journal club, smart. so they have to present a paper every week, and it can't be more than three years old. And so that really makes the students aware of the technologies and just the amount of information that is required to actually support a hypothesis today. And yeah. I still try to read a lot. I think that's one thing I like about teaching is it keeps me reading out of my field. I yeah. think that's the big difference in your postdoc. You read every single paper that has to do with your project. Now, because I teach genetic counseling students, I've become an expertise in structural variation. And I have to have expertise in somatic curation in addition to germline curation. And so that has really helped me as a scientist think of new ideas and hypotheses I bring back to my work because I do have to stay abreast of so many fields that our students might get a job in. I love the flipped classroom model. I only had in my undergraduate two classes that were like that, but I think it's really great. Why? I'm sure the science probably supports it. Why don't more schools do that? I will say it is more work. I think I was shocked that it took me so long to record a video lecture that I was happy with. Right. Might be I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, right? But I knew that like this is going to be used for not just one lecture. It's going to be used for years in this lecture. And so one 45-minute lecture takes five, six hours to record and produce and add the little animations and add, you know, labels. And so there is benefit once you get it done. You can reuse it multiple times, but it also takes a lot of effort to make a great activity that really does hit those learning objectives. The one thing that KGI was great when I came here, there was so much faculty development around like how to convert standard lecture, which is what I did at the undergraduate colleges, with the exception of like two active learning days. So I mean, I knew I should be doing it, but I wasn't going to convert a whole class. But here, once we were starting a new program, and we really were starting from scratch we decided like, okay, we're going to just take this on and do it. I did not sleep much that first semester. Some of the things were recorded perhaps too late at night. <laughs> but now that I have it, it's just tweaking it a little bit each year. I think it really does help with accessibility. And that's something I'm also very passionate about for our students. We've had a student with deafness. And so all the videos had to be captioned. I don't know how I could have lectured live for that student, right? right. It would yeah. not have worked. We have students with learning um, disabilities where they like reading the transcript also. And just the ability to listen to it multiple times, yeah. especially for our students that came in from a different background. So we have some students who are directly out of undergrad, but we also have some that have worked for a while. We had one student who was a science teacher in high school for several years before she decided she wanted to do more science hands-on. And so for her, you know, she had to stop and like go back and get background material a few times. And so that gives you that opportunity to be like, wait, I didn't even, I didn't hear that. Let me go back to the textbook and let me now listen to that with a little bit more context. And so I think it is a hurdle to convert your class, but I will say it is very satisfying to see how much more the students retain. Definitely. What are the big changes? You mentioned going to redo your lectures after five years. What are the big things that have changed in that period of time? Well, I just updated my RNA lecture. I think how fast we're learning about what all the non-coding RNAs do and how they're regulated and how they regulate transcripts. That was a big one. I do need to figure out how not to make it just alphabet soup because it's like, and these are the PB RNAs, and these are the small nuclear RNAs, and these are the small nuclear RNAs. What do like... they do? I <laughs> maybe you can educate me. I mean, what I'm very behind on understanding. 
RNA. Yeah, so they almost all regulate translation and gene expression. So, you know, part of the splicing mechanism is all controlled by RNAs and RNA ribonucleoproteins. proteins. So a lot of them have to do with whether you stabilize or degrade an mRNA. You also have the ones that help mature tRNAs. So there's a lot of RNA editing. That's something that I had to add a lot more to our lecture that we now know that even after our DNA is transcribed into RNA, we can change the code if we want to. And so there's all of these control of when should this happen. And so that is mediated by RNA. And so RNA kind of takes care of itself. Like you think of mRNAs as being sort of the thing of what you probably envision in your mind if you hear me say RNA, but all of the other RNAs help support getting that from DNA into protein form, whether it's inside the nucleus in the little nuclear ones or even in the mitochondria. Interesting. What else are the big shifts been? What else? I think another thing I've also had to update a lot is our structural variation. Now that we have long read sequencing, we know a lot more about structural variation in humans and just how much there is that I think perhaps in the past we might have overinterpreted when we discovered a structural variant, not knowing that all of us have a lot of structural variation. I think the other thing is a lot of somatic changes to understand how even though you have perhaps a DNA change in the genome, is that actually being expressed in patients? And so now that there are these big studies looking at RNA-seq data matched up with the actual somatic variants in cancer, trying to use the RNA to really understand what is pathogenic and finding all these really interesting novel gene fusions, I think we thought might have been special cases or pretty uncommon. They're not. They're in a lot of patients and they could be key cancer drivers. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I remember when I was a PhD student, there were a couple of papers that came out around somatic mutations in cancer from some of the groups at the Sanger Institute where I was that blew my mind in terms of they almost found the exact opposite of what you'd expect, that your healthy eyelids were riddled with mutations, many of which were cancer drivers. And apparently it was absolutely fine. And now they're fine. I came across a paper not too long ago that looked at neurons and a number of neurodegenerative diseases finding same kind of pattern of somatic mutations in places you wouldn't expect. So it seems like with every peel of the onion, there's more and more <laughs> complexity. It's never yeah. as simple as as we think. And our genome is resilient. I mean, I think when I came in, I starting in this DNA damage background and really working on all the ways that things could go wrong, I think I felt like if I found one variant, it was definitely going to be pathogenic. And what I think the real story is, is that our genome can tolerate change. It can figure out how to work with it. So this gene copy is now messed up. Okay, we'll just not express from this one. We'll use the other one. Like it is amazing that it works for us in all of our different cells, right? And all the different gene expression patterns it needs to manifest. The genome can pretty much hang in there through all of its environmental damage, all of the things we do to our bodies. Like it will be there for us. So your students in the analytics course, for example, where do they typically end up? How many go into academic research? How many are in pharma and biotech? How many go and work in healthcare? I'm curious what that rough split looks like. So we've had several graduating classes now, still about half of them 
choose to work as clinical variant interpretation scientists. So they look at sequencing data from patients and try to see if any of the variation can explain the phenotypes that are seen. So from there, about half of them work at specialized medical centers. So either cancer hospitals or at children's hospitals where we're doing the most sequencing and have the most in-house teams. The other half work for companies that do it as fee-for-service. So Natera, Genomenon, Invite, these are companies where physicians from all over the world mail samples and they mail back reports. Recently, though, we've had more students going towards the pharma route. So from our current, our last graduating class, we had several that are interested in using genetic data for better treatments and drug development. So we have some people working in the, usually the computational biology groups at large pharma companies or even a couple of startups that are still trying to like launch a couple products. We do have some students who have decided to go on to other degrees, which I'm 100% in support of. We have one who will graduate as a medical doctor very soon. And I really want more doctors to understand genomics. It's a bit scary how little being that how much genetic medicine is coming. So we have one MD, we have one person who decided after coming in very much thinking they were going to go the variant interpretation route, loved bioinformatics, is getting a PhD in bioinformatics now. And then we have one person who got very interested in disparities in healthcare and access, and so is now a policy analyst. And so that's kind of a split role. So half the time she does interpretation, but the other side, she's a policy analyst. And I love that because I think we need people who understand these technologies to advocate for reimbursements, for just rollout in different healthcare systems. There are a lot of things we can do and we just don't do at scale because the infrastructure isn't ready. And so a lot of times that infrastructure requires, unfortunately, laws to be passed. And that means you have to educate lawmakers and you have to educate healthcare executives. Like it's a lot that needs to happen between like understanding of how the genome is working and telling us what's going on in our patients to just rolling that out as standard of care. So that's kind of the feel, I would say. 50-50 between healthcare roles and biotech with a few others. Interesting. You went there already, so I was going to ask about doctors. We, in my day job at Sana, we run a lot of large-scale genetic testing programs that are both direct to patient and to healthcare providers. And one of the biggest challenges or tailwinds, I guess, in these programs is whether or not the doctors are really comfortable with genetic. There's a lot of good reasons genetic tests aren't ordered, like if it's not a clinical Mm -hmm. If there's no clinical outcome that's going to directly happen, if there are Mm -hmm. insurance considerations, but then there are a lot of barriers that are more about, I don't know how to interpret it and I don't have counseling resource at my institute, for example. Mm -hmm. How do you think about solving what I think is a pretty massive problem of re-educating an entire generation of doctors that have Mm -hmm. didn't learn about these things in med school and whether or not they're interested in them, the access to good teaching may not be possible for a lot of people. How do you think about that? It is a challenge. We do have some of our healthcare partners like at Rady Children's Hospital that do a lot for physician education and running workshops. And I think one thing that has helped a lot is there's now a lot of publications showing the clinical utility. I think for a while there was this thought like, okay, yes, you have a few patients where this worked, but these are going to be the zebras, right? Not the horses. And we all have to do with the horses and not the zebras. And so By publishing big studies like the Rady Children's study, which showed, you know, 40%, you know, they could do molecular diagnosis or genetic diagnosis in 40% of these critically ill newborns. 
and they could save money. That got people's attention. But it is still a question of on a one-to-one doctor relationship to convince them that, A, it's not scary. You can learn this. You probably already know enough context to really understand this. But yes, you might have to do something different. I think that is hard to say to someone who's been trained in all these diagnostic sort of flow charts that, no, we have one test that's going to just supersede what you've been doing and you've developed and all of your intuition because this is going to be right. And I think as we have more data to show that it's not just this one patient, it's not just a computer telling you to do something different, we do have evidence that it actually has patient benefits. I think the uptake is going to be faster. I think there is going to be a crunch though. Once people do get on board, are there opportunities to get that education? And I will say that the pathologists in the United States have been really on the forefront of this. I have several friends who are molecular pathologists. And so I think from their side, they're ready and they've been ramping up education for a while. For other specialties, I am a bit worried But there are other specialties that are picking up the pace. Like, so the nursing profession has been very early to embrace genetic education in their training programs. And so I think that kind of, it's not just the doctors, it's like everyone in the healthcare system system really needs to get up to speed. But the other thing that's helping is just public interest. If every dinner, you know, holiday conversation is like, who did the 23andMe test, right? It's starting to put genetics just back in the public sphere. And that I think, Students in high school right now are getting a lot of genetics, like the AP biology curriculum has what we used to teach as undergrads, like in upper division courses, and young people are really interested in it. So I think there's going to be a bit of a lagging wave, but at the same time, you just can't avoid the impact that it's having. And I think even doctors who are overwhelmed and intimidated, they want to help their patients, so they're going to learn it. My last question for you here, just because we're running out of time, I think students are often a window into our future, like they, what they're interested in is going to be the next wave in many cases. I'm curious of the all the things you teach in the, is it a two-year program? It's a two-year program, yeah. What are the one or two things that you see really lights people's eyes up, they get most excited about if you had to pick? I would say the ability to diagnose rare disease in infants really gets people fired up. I think We do talk a lot about the rare disease odyssey because a lot of these are genetic conditions, not all of them, but a lot. And the average diagnostic odyssey in the United States is five to seven years. And so that's five to seven years of doctor's appointments and treatments that don't work. And I think that bothers people, especially when you see pictures of sick kids. And the fact that you can do a test and within 24 hours have a completely fully interpreted genome and make a difference in treatment and that saves someone who would not have survived their first month of life, like that gets people excited. I think the other thing that gets people, the students fired up, not in the positive way, though, is the real disparities in the data sets that we use to make genetic and genomic discoveries. They are very interested in diversity and equity. And so the fact that we haven't yet had samples from diverse genomes in all of our studies, like that gets them really fired up. And I think it's going to be the change that really makes us as a field pay attention, not just to check a box, but to actually include people from a variety of backgrounds. And that is going to give us better science, right? It's going to help those populations 
reap the benefits of the genetics revolution. And at the same time, we can't do it without everyone participating. And so that is one thing that I think the students are very aware of, and they very much want to make sure that we do it better in the future. Amazing. What a great note to end on. And by the way, I met a group of your students at the, there was an Illumina conference Ah, in San Diego, and I met a number of them and they were all very, uh, very, very smart and very uh, interesting to talk to. So you clearly have done a good job both picking them and uh, and teaching them through the program. <laughs> Thank you. They're a great group. I will say it makes me happy to come in and teach them because it's so exciting. Graduate level education, everyone's there because they care about this and they want this to be their career and passion. And so it helps remind me why I was so passionate about the field to begin with. Definitely. We'll close on that note. And I'd just like to say, first of all, thank you, Barbara, so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Great. And thank you, everybody, as always, for listening. If you have any guest ideas, feedback, or you'd like to get in touch with us, then you can reach us at podcast at sonogenetics.com. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.